I fear not the dark itself, but what may lurk within it. Welcome to Lurk, bringing you creepy, strange, and bone-chilling stories with your host, Jamie Jackson. Lurkers, welcome to episode 31. I hope everybody had a safe and happy Halloween. Um, My husband and I were camping this past weekend with the grandkids. Because of that, I was looking to find a relatively easy topic for this week's episode. I am at the point, I I try to record and edit and do everything ahead of time, but (laughs) I've been playing catch-up basically since the summer, and so I record everything the week before it's released. So because I was camping, I was unable to record when I would normally record. So I wanted something that was going to be relatively easy to research. I looked and saw that I hadn't done a missing 411 case recently. The last one was the Jared Adadero case. So I came across the case of the disappearance of Carl Landers in California in 1999 from the Mount Shasta area. And I figured I would go with that case. I began researching, and basically this is now going to end up being a two-part series that focuses on all the weirdness that surrounds Mount Shasta. Today, though, I'm primarily going to be focusing on mysterious disappearances on Mount Shasta. Most notably, the one that I'm going to concentrate on the most is the disappearance of Carl Landers, as I mentioned. So before I get too far into everything, the missing 411 refers to cases of people who go missing with no real straightforward explanation as to what happened to them. Sometimes they are found, most of the time they are not. We have covered two of these cases, the first being the case of Dennis Martin, which was episode number four, and then again with the case of Jared Adadero, which was episode number 20. So I don't want to go too far into it. David Polites is the man who started this Missing 411 research. He's written several different books. The Carl Landers case is featured in his book, Missing 411, Western United States and Canada. If you're interested in his books, do not try to purchase them on Amazon you need to go directly to David Polite's website. They're about $25 a piece on his website. I will make sure I put that link in the show notes for you. But these cases, a lot of them happen in national parks, and typically they all follow a set amount of criteria. I'm not going to go too far into it. If you've been listening to us all along, you're already familiar. If not, I recommend going back and listening to those two cases. As always, I like to give background information on the area that I'm going to be discussing. Mount Shasta is located in Northern California. Now there's a Mount Shasta mountain, which is what I'm talking about. And there's a Mount Shasta city, which is a city at the base of the mountain. In case it gets confusing, most of the time I'm going to be talking about the mountain. I will address Mount Shasta city as Mount Shasta city so that you know which one I'm referring to. So Mount Shasta is, as I said, located in Northern California. 
It is north of Sacramento and about 60 miles south of the Oregon-California border. The mountain and surrounding area are part of the Shasta Trinity National Forest. The mountain is a 14,179-foot stratovolcano that is potentially active and on the southern end of the Cascade Range, though it is oddly offset 15 miles to the west of the standard arc line of the other Cascade volcanoes, and nobody understands why that is. If you're interested to know some of the other Cascade volcanoes, Mount Hood, Mount Rainier, Mount Adams. Mount Adams was featured in episode, I think, three, which was the UFO Ranch episode. It is the second highest peak in the Cascades. Mount Rainier in Washington State is the highest at 14,411 feet. Shasta is the fifth highest peak in the state of California. Some information says that it last erupted in 1786. However, this date was disputed by the Smithsonian Institution's Global Volcanism Program, who says the last eruption was in 1250 AD, and this was proven by carbon dating. And apparently, the 1786 information was given by French explorers who said they saw billowing smoke near the top of the mountain. Researchers now believe that what they saw was smoke from a uh, wildfire and not smoke from the actual volcano. It's estimated that the volcano erupts roughly every 600 to 800 years. In case you're wondering, 800 years would be 2050. The way the last couple years are going, I'd be careful. The U.S. Geological Survey currently monitors Mount Shasta, and they have it rated as a very high-threat volcano. It's fifth out of 18 volcanoes that are considered a threat in the United States. Kilauea on Hawaii is ranked first, just for comparison. Mount Shasta is considered a young volcano, and sometimes when you get near the summit, you can actually still smell sulfur. It is said that the volcano is actually full of lava. The oldest known human settlement in the area dates back 7,000 years, and there have been several Native American tribes that live or have lived in the area that include, and I'm going to attempt to do these names without butchering them, so I apologize, Shasta the Okwachu, the Modoc, the Achamawi, the Atsugewi, the Karuk, the Klamath, the Wintu, and the Yana. These are the tribes that lived in the area of Mount Shasta. In the early 1850s, the California Gold Rush brought the first Euro-American settlements. In 1854, the first recorded ascent of the mountain happened. And uh, later, 1976, it was designated a National Natural Landmark. According to the Mount Shasta City Chamber of Commerce, the mountain pulls in about 26,000 visitors each year. And though it's difficult to count exactly, there are around 10,000 people hiking the mountain each year, give or take. So it's not just the beauty of the outdoors that draws people in. It's also the high strangeness of the area, including its myths and legends that seems to bring in large crowds. Mysterious disappearances are just one of the strange things about Shasta, and as I said, that's what we're going to be talking about today. The first odd disappearance occurred in 1934, but the story itself begins 30 years earlier in 1904 with a British prospector named J.C. Brown. J.C. was hired by the Lord 
Caldry Mining Company to prospect for gold. While he was out searching, he found a cave that sloped down into the earth for nearly 11 miles. Inside, he eventually found gold and mummies, some of which he said were 10 feet tall. 30 years later, in 1934, J.C. Brown gathered an 80-person expedition team to go in search of the treasure-filled cave. The expedition was led by a man named J.C. Root. There was much excitement about the expedition. Who wouldn't be excited about a treasure-filled cave? And honestly, I'm really trying not to sing the song Shiny or whatever it's called from Moana. It's so shiny. On the day they were to start their expedition, J.C. Brown is a no-show. Not only did he fail to show for the start of the expedition, but he was never heard from again. So there was speculation that Brown was a con man, even though some of the people in the expedition group sold their homes and quit their jobs. J.C. Brown never actually received a penny of that money, or any money for that matter, for the expedition. So the question remains, what was his goal and where did he go? If his goal was to be a con man to collect money, he didn't do that. And he left, and nobody heard from him again. So that is the first mysterious disappearance that surrounds Mount Shasta. There's another interesting story about the disappearance of a three-year-old boy that takes place much more recently. Luckily, this story has a happy ending and that he was actually found. But when he's found, that's kind of when things get a little strange. There's never any mention of the boy's name, but apparently September 2nd in 2011, he's camping with his family on Mount Shasta when he goes missing. According to witnesses in the area, he was gone within a second. Search and rescue is called out and they begin searching the area for him. It was thought that other campers in the area were responsible for the boy's disappearance and they were questioned at length. Five hours after he goes missing, the boy is found by search and rescue and he is found standing next to a trail. This is rather odd since it can be assumed that he wouldn't be too far away if he's found right next to the trail. And yet everybody is searching the area pretty heavily. I mean, there's a lot of people out there searching for him. You'd think if he was close enough to end up back at the trail, he would be close enough to find. But they didn't find him. He was just kind of standing there and they there he is. So when they find him, they ask him about where he's been and he has quite the story to tell. He said he was taken into an underground cave by a woman who looked like his grandmother, but he thought she was a robot. And the woman asked him if he was okay and if he was comfortable. And he's taken to this cave and the cave is filled with spiders. And let me just tell you, that's a big old note for me. I can handle snakes. I can handle all kinds of creepy crawly things. I'm good with bugs. I don't like spiders. I appreciate them. They're great. I don't want them on me. And I sure as heck do not want to be in a dark spider filled cave. That's a big old no. I've read a couple of different little blurbs that mentioned the boy says that the robot, there was more than one robot and they wanted to do tests on him. There was never any explanation on how exactly he disappeared or why he was unseen for five hours by searchers who were combing the area and then how he suddenly appears on the trail. So they have no idea how he's nowhere to be found one moment and then the next moment there he is. Another interesting part of the story, and I don't know how true this is because there really is not a whole lot of information about this particular story. I found a couple little things of it 
So I can't vouch 100% if it's true. I know there was a three-year-old boy. I know he went missing. I know there was search and rescue. I know he was found. And that he apparently had this crazy story. This part I don't really know about. But apparently the very same grandmother that the boy mentions. So he says he's taken by a woman who he thinks is a robot that resembles his grandmother. The grandmother claimed that she woke up one morning face down in the dirt having been removed from her tent and her sleeping bag while she was camping at Mount Shasta. I believe this is a separate trip, not on the same trip. When she woke up, she had a puncture wound on the back of her head and felt violently ill and strangely emotionless. She thought that she may have been bitten by a venomous spider. A friend that she was camping with at the time was in a separate camper, and he also woke up with a bite on the back of his neck and he felt ill. The only strange thing that the grandmother and friend recalled was that they had seen red eye shine through the trees in their flashlight beams the night before. They thought it was a deer. Just so you know, deer do not have red eye shine. They have a whitish eye shine that can also appear greenish or yellowish, but not red. I believe owls, coyotes, foxes, crocodiles, and alligators off the top of my head are all animals that have red eye shine. I think rodents too, possibly. Don't quote me on that. That's just off the top of my head. So the good thing here is that he was found quickly and completely unharmed. Unlike the next disappearance and our main focus for this episode, the missing climber Carl Herbert Landers. Carl Landers was born August 26, 1929 in Chicago, Illinois. He eventually moved to California where he met his wife, Bobby, and together they had three children, two girls and a boy. They lived in Orinda, California, which is located just east of San Francisco across the bay. Carl was very active in the school system. He served as president of like their parent-teacher association, and he later became elected to the school board. His wife was the former mayor of Orinda and a member of the Orinda City Council. There's some information that says Carl was an engineer, but for 10 years before retirement, he worked for train heating and air conditioning as a salesperson, and it was kind of mentioned as though that was like a step down. But I found information that listed his profession as a sales engineer. I had never heard of this and thought perhaps it was a fancy way of saying retail salesperson, like housewife as a domestic engineer. If you're in retail sales, you're a sales engineer because I did retail sales for 10 years and that sounds so much better on a resume. Unfortunately, I looked it up and a sales engineer is someone who sells complex scientific and technological products or services to businesses. There is a four-year bachelor's degree needed and it's typically a degree in mechanical, electrical, or chemical engineering. So the job with train was most likely a job as a sales engineer selling complex heating and cooling systems. Carl was an avid runner. He ran every day for the last 30 years prior to his disappearance. He was a distance runner and he dreamed of running in the Boston Marathon. His dream came true when he won a lottery that gave him a spot in the 100th running of the Boston Marathon. He finished the 26.2 mile run in 5 hours and 30 minutes, which is considered a respectable time. The average time in 2019 for comparison for his age group was around four hours. When he got older, Carl had the idea of climbing the highest peak in each of California's 58 counties. By 1998, he had climbed a few of them. 
He had successfully climbed Mount Whitney, which is the highest peak in California, and he also had spent time hiking down the Grand Canyon, so he was definitely an experienced hiker outdoorsman. He was not inexperienced. May of 1998, he attempted to summit Mount Shasta. I learned that it only counts as a summit if you get to the top and then make it all the way back down under your own power. Carl did not earn the summit that year. Apparently, he slid down and he vowed to return for another attempt. A year later, May of 1999, Carl got his chance to give Mount Shasta another go. He and two longtime friends, Milton or Milt Gaines and Barry Gilmore, were also making the attempt. Barry, Milton, Carl were all members of a local running club, which is how they all had met. Milton and Barry were going to attempt the climb up Shasta, and Carl asked to join them. Barry was 60 years old and a graduate of the University of Oregon with a business degree. He ended up being a Navy pilot from 1961 to 1966, flying aircraft off the carriers Midway, Hancock, and Enterprise. When he left the military, he flew commercial planes with American Airlines for 33 years. Milt was 64, owned a wholesale warehouse and associated business in San Francisco, and was a member of the running club for over 20 years, and was in excellent shape. May 23, 1999, the three men stayed in a hotel the night before their climb in Mount Shasta City. Carl had driven the five hours alone and met up with Barry and Milt there at the hotel. All three men were well prepared. They had ice axes, crampons for their boots, And crampons are things, I'm sure everybody has seen them. In case you don't know what they are, they fit over your boot. So the top has like straps that goes over the top of your boot. And the bottom has long spikes to allow you to dig into snow and ice to give you better traction. They had the proper winter weather attire, proper boots. So they were 100% prepared. According to Barry and Milt, Carl was taking a medication called Diamox to help prevent altitude sickness. Side effects, according to WebMD, are dizziness, lightheadedness, and increased urination. These are the most common side effects seen in the first few days as the body adjusts to the medication. Other less common side effects are blurred vision, dry mouth, drowsiness, loss of appetite, nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, and changes in taste. Typically, a 125 milligram capsule is taken twice a day, beginning 24 hours before arriving at high altitude, and continued 48 hours while at high altitude. It can be taken for an additional 48 hours if symptoms persist and indicate need for more pills. This is to help with altitude sickness, which is a result in the change of barometric pressure and lack of oxygen at higher altitudes. This usually begins to occur at elevations over 8,000 feet, when you don't allow your body time to adjust to the changes. Most common symptoms of altitude sickness are headache, dizziness, nausea, vomiting, fatigue, loss of energy, shortness of breath, sleep problems, loss of appetite, and it can develop into more serious cases, which are indicated by trouble walking, severe headache, tightening of the chest, confusion, shortness of breath at rest, inability to walk, cough-producing white or pink froth, or coma. So I'm going to make the assumption that Carl was known to have some issues with altitude sickness if he had been prescribed Diamox. It is only available by prescription. It is not available over the counter. 
But honestly, most of the drug side effects are the same as actual altitude sickness. So I guess he must have had some serious issues with altitude sickness. Otherwise, why take the medication? So, May 24th. The three men left the hotel around 4 a.m. Barry drives all three of them to the trailhead in his four-wheel drive vehicle. Their hike started in an area that is known as Avalanche Gulch. The trailhead started in Bunny Flats. And from the trailhead to the summit of the mountain was about six miles. Now that seems like no big deal, something you can do in a day. But you need to keep in mind that while it seems like no big deal, it's not something that's a simple hike. The mountain summit is covered in ice and snow. Bunny Flats is about 6,800 feet above sea level. And you're going from 6,800 feet to over 14,000 feet. So that's a significant elevation change and not something that you can just zip up and back. Barry and Milt said that they started their trek at Bunny Flats and when they did, there were about 10 to 12 foot snow drifts in that area. The plan was to hike three to four miles from Bunny Flats up the mountain to an area where the Sierra Club had an old cabin called Horse Camp. A short time into their trip, Carl had to stop and go behind a boulder because he had diarrhea, possibly due to the diamox. The men continued on until they reached the location called the 50-50, which is about 660 feet from the area known as Lake Helen. Lake Helen is a major stop for most climbers. It's where most climbers stop for the night before they push to reach the summit. By early afternoon, the wind was blowing hard and the three men made the decision to camp at the 50-50, so they dug their three-person tent into the sand and hunkered down. Barry and Milt said that Carl had to leave the tent for another round of diarrhea, but other than that, everything seemed to be basically normal. By the early morning hours on May 25th, the wind was blowing at an estimated 70 miles per hour. The men watched climbers leaving the Lake Helen area and heading back down to the mountain, opting not to summit. They opted to stay in their sleeping bags in their tent for a little bit longer and see if the storm might subside. Their tent was positioned against the mountain between some large boulders, and that was able to provide them with some pretty decent protection from the wind. A few hours later, the wind subsided and they saw climbers heading back up the mountain. As a group, the three men decided to hike to Lake Helen. They didn't think that they would actually be summiting the mountain that day, but they wanted to check to see what the weather was like. Barry and Milt were working to put their tent in the bag, and they noticed Carl was standing and staring, and he appeared to be cold. Milt told Carl to go ahead and start walking to Lake Helen, and they would meet him there. The hike to Lake Helen was short, only about 660 feet, and Milt and Barry would finish packing the gear and head out behind him. Now, as a hiker, there are a couple of reasons why this is not a good idea. You should never separate from your group. You should all stick together. Hiking with a partner means that you have someone with you to help you if you need it. If one of you gets hurt, there's another one of you there to try to render aid, get help, whatever you need. Not only is it not a good idea to send anybody off by themselves, you most definitely don't want to send someone off alone if you think there's an issue. If Carl was indeed cold, there's a concern for hypothermia. Hypothermia sets in at 50 degrees. The winds are blowing pretty hard. I don't know what they are at this point, but it's been pretty cold. There is snow on the ground. 
you don't want to send somebody off who might be feeling cold to the point where you can visibly notice that there's a problem. And not only that, but he's on medications that he's apparently suffering side effects from. So sending that person off alone is just really not a good idea. I'm assuming here that Milt thought standing around was the issue and that walking and moving would allow Carl to warm up. He he was thinking that he was making a good decision and get moving, get walking, your you'll you know your activity will warm your your body temperature up. Plus, the hike to Lake Helen is just a short distance. The trail curves around the mountain, so basically there's nothing in the way, so you would be able to see Carl hiking until he reached the bend, at which point he would then be visible to those on the other side of the trail on the Lake Helen side. So Carl starts off and Barry and Milt finish packing the gear. They all leave their stuff at the 50-50 because they are planning to go back there and they head out for Lake Helen. Barry and Milt are about 30 minutes behind Carl. About halfway between the 50-50 and Lake Helen, Barry begins feeling sick and he tells Milt that he's heading back to the 50-50 to grab the tent and he would meet them back at the car. Milt agrees, tells him to go ahead. So Barry heads down to Bunny Flats and the car, and Milt continues to head off to Lake Helen to meet up with Carl. Milt arrives at Lake Helen, and he sees about 20 to 24 campsites, but he sees no sign of Carl at all. He goes to the ranger supervising the area and asks if another man has passed through and continued to climb. The ranger says only one man had gone up and had taken the casual route. So Milt takes off after the climber, just in case it's Carl. When Milt gets to within about 100 yards of the climber, he can tell that the guy was, he was way too fast to catch. And this meant he was also way too fast to beat Carl. So he heads back to Lake Helen. Back at the lake, he talks to the ranger again and asks if anyone matching Carl's description had passed through. But the ranger says no, no one matching that description had been there. Milt then heads back to the 50-50, hoping that Carl would be sitting there waiting for him. But Carl wasn't there. The guys had left their packs sitting at the 50-50 while they hiked to Lake Helen. So both Milt's and Carl's packs were still there. Barry, of course, took his pack when he went back to the trailhead. And that's not unusual. If you're long-distance hiking, a lot of times you might leave your pack to go down a side trail that would lead to like a vista or whatever, because you don't need to take your entire pack with you. Sometimes hikers doing long distance hikes will leave their pack at their camp and do what's called slack packing, where you have just the bare minimum, so you're not carrying a heavier pack. So the fact that they left their packs at the 50-50 is not really anything notable, other than Carl's pack is still sitting there. When Milk gets back to the 50-50, it's about 5 p.m. And he waits there for about another hour before deciding to take his pack and heading back to the trailhead at Bunny Flats. He left Carl's pack there in case Carl happened to return so that he would have his items that he would need. Milt arrives at Bunny Flats around 7 or 8 p.m. and he meets up with Barry and the two men end up calling the Siskiyou County Sheriff's Department to inform them that Carl was missing. The search was to begin the following morning. So the next morning, May 26th, Milton Barry returned to the trailhead to find the U.S. Forest Service crews and Siskiyou County Sheriff on the scene. At this time, Barry calls Carl's wife, Bobby Landers, and tells her that Carl is missing. 
Bobby says something a little bit strange to him. She says, I had a premonition something would happen. Later that afternoon, another mutual friend flies Bobby and Milt's wife to Mount Shasta City. This way, Bobby is able to know exactly firsthand what's going on with the search. And Milt's wife came along as moral support. They were all friends. They've been friends for a long time. Milt adamantly insists that there were no large crevasses in the area. Carl was hiking and there was no place at all for Carl to be able to hide. Milt and Barry decide to hike back to Lake Helen and search the area. Carl's pack is still sitting at the 50-50 untouched. The ranger at Lake Helen confirms that no one matching Carl's description had been seen. The search and rescue coordinator assigned to the search was named Grizz Adams, who had hundreds of search and rescues on his resume. With a name like Grizz Adams, he's got to be super cool. So Grizz Adams had an Army National Guard helicopter pilot take professional climbers to the summit of Mount Shasta, where he had them descend down the mountain, each taking a different route looking for Carl. The climbers slowly descended, but they found no sign of Carl at all. There was no helmet, no tracks, no ice axe, no, ve- no evidence whatsoever that Carl had even been there. Even though there were 20 to 24 campsites and about 50 to 100 people on the mountain, no one had seen Carl. There were even teams searching in a grid pattern in the forested areas near the base of the mountain. U.S. Forest Service, Shasta Mountain Guides, and Siskiyou County Sheriff's Department on skis and snowshoes were joined by volunteers from Marin and San Mateo counties, along with others from Sutter, Placer, and Humboldt counties and Southern Oregon. Also involved in the search was a California Highway Patrol helicopter outfitted with infrared sensing device and two National Guard helicopters. One of these is the helicopter that took the climbers to the top of the summit. On the stretch of trail where Carl disappeared, there is a completely unobstructed view. It's a solid snow field with no crevices at all. No sharp drops, nowhere for a person to disappear. No trees or shrubs to conceal a body or to get lost in. There were no traces in the snow to indicate anyone had gone off trail at all. In fact, there was just no evidence, period. No clothing, no remains, no equipment, nothing. No indication that Carl had ever even been on the mountain. Milt was so distraught and desperate that he ended up speaking with three separate psychics. One said that Carl was in water. Another said that he was in a crevice and it would be many years before he was found. Neither of these were very helpful. Lake Helen was searched and that was the only body of water. Cadaver dogs and human scent dogs were brought in, but they found nothing. There were no scent hits at all. As far as predators, there are black bears near the area, but typically they're shy and non-confrontational. And at the elevation where this happened, black bears aren't there. There's no cover for them there. They're down towards the tree line. There was also no sign of an animal attack. The area was completely snow-covered. Had there been an animal attack, there would have been blood and signs of a struggle. Hypothermia is a possibility, except typically in the late stages of hypothermia, people tend to discard clothing, and there was absolutely no clothing found. Nothing was found. And this area was wide open, and with all of the people searching, there's no place for Carl to hide, so 
hypothermia really is kind of ruled out here because there there would have been some indication. There would have been some evidence of him there on the mountain. Because the mountain is monitored by the U.S. Geological Survey, the seismic activity was checked to see if there might have been some activity that might point to some sort of explanation. They thought perhaps if there had been some minor seismic activity, it could have caused like a rocks to slide or something, and maybe that was an explanation. But there was absolutely no activity recorded at all. On June 1st, 1999, the search was scaled back and eventually ended on June 3rd. Hikers were told to keep an eye out, and should anything be found, the search would resume, according to the Siskiyou County Sheriff's spokeswoman. Uh, Milt said, There's over a 50% chance something very odd happened. There was no official explanation. Milt also pointed out that everything above Avalanche Gulch area was covered in snow, and the color contrast of the clothing Carl was wearing would have stood out against the white. But nothing was seen. Grizz Adams, the search and rescue coordinator, had over 400 search and rescue operations and 30-plus years of experience in search and rescue. He said Carl Lander's disappearance was only one of two cases in his entire career where no sign of the person was ever found. The other case also happened in the area of Mount Shasta, and I'm thinking that may be our next 411 case. David Polites was able to interview Grizz Adams, and according to that interview, Grizz reiterated that that the topography of the area where Carl went missing had no features that would give him a place to disappear. Grizz Adams prides himself in finding people who are missing, and he stays on the search until the family members call it off. He was incredibly bothered by the fact that they didn't find any of Carl's belongings. None of the equipment he had with him was found, and typically people in distress start shedding items they no longer want to carry. One question to ask is, was Carl Landers ever on the mountain to begin with? Now, this question has been asked before, and somebody pointed out that permits are required to climb, but you're able to get a permit 24-7 at any of the trailheads without seeing an actual ranger to receive it. So was he there? Did something happen to him before he even got to the trailhead? Did he want to disappear, or was it something else? I mean, if you can't find any sign of somebody, it begs the question, were they ever there to be found? Now, I'm not saying Milton Berry did anything to him or had a point in this. It seemed that they were both pretty distraught in reading a lot of the newspaper accounts, but you have to ask that question. So during the David Polites interview, Grizz Adams stated, In 35 years, I've never had this happen to me. We were all over that mountain. He was not on the mountain. We brought canines in. They didn't pick him up. We flew around it. We dropped guys at the summit. They came down all sides. They couldn't find him. They talked to people who were on the mountain. They didn't see him. There's snow around the path where he was, and nobody went outside the path. When asked what he thought happened to Carl on the mountain, Grizz replied, That's the million-dollar question. He either went up or in, but he's not on it. And on that ominous note, we've come to the end of part one of the two-part Mount Shasta weirdness episodes. Make sure you listen next week to hear about all the truly strange things going on and around the mountain. And let me tell you, it's really strange. To give you a little bit of information, there are UFOs, there is Bigfoot, 
there is a lost civilization that resides within the mountain. Truly, truly strange. So, as always, you can find Lurk wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts or always at lurkpodcast.com. On the website, you'll also find links to all of our social media accounts, and we always encourage you to join us on one or all of those. I post any relevant photos for each week's episode, along with some other nonsense here and there. We also have a Facebook group, and we encourage you to join in on the discussion. We have merchandise available at lurkpodcastmerch.com. We have hoodies, along with long-sleeve shirts for the cold weather moving in, plus t-shirts and other whatnot. If you have a suggestion for an episode topic, please drop us a line at lurkpodcast at yahoo.com or send us a message through any of our social media platforms. And as always, keep lurking! Keep lurking!